Well, uh, good, mo- good morning, everybody. Um, if you're following in your notes, we're on page six. If uh, you're following in the Bible, possibly you're doing both. We're ready to start Genesis three. Um, in the middle of page six is just a summary of um, what we've done so far, and you obviously are seeing that we're really taking our time going through this book. And part of uh, part of my goal is to make a very familiar book, or at least I think it's probably familiar to you, really come alive uh, and and doing it as slowly and as methodically as we possibly can. Chapter 1 and 2 uh, of the book of Genesis are not two different accounts of creation, as the critic says. They are parallel accounts of creation. Genesis 1's focus is on the creation of the physical universe, with the apex uh, being the creation of humanity in God's image. Chapter 2 is a focus on the sixth day of God's creation, with the apex or focal point being the creation of institution, marriage. And we spent quite a bit of time dealing with that last, in a way, the last two sessions together, but especially last time. I draw your attention to a key word in the last verse of chapter 2, which is the bridge I want to build to chapter 3. Moses is writing this, and he makes a commentary on what God has done. Verse 22, or 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were naked. Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word naked there is really, really an important word. Obviously, um, it means that they don't have any clothes on. But it's far, far deeper than that because the word is going to be used in chapter 3 and actually in in the subsequent chapter to that. But it's going to be used in chapter 3 in a wordplay because naked means they are oblivious to danger. They are oblivious to to the dangers of sin, the dangers of, of all of the evil that is lurking, and that is we will see in chapter 3. The naked, not only in the sense that they do not have any clothing, and there's, there's, that's part of what God is doing there. I mean, they are so other-centered, they're not even thinking of themselves. And so there's just this comfort, this, this giving of, of, of themselves to one another, but it also is a wordplay on what you're going to see in chapter 3. They are totally oblivious to evil. They don't know anything about evil. They don't know anything, and, and understandably so, they wouldn't. But in a, in a very real sense, because of what happens in chapter 3, they are vulnerable. And that's, that's what Satan is going to take advantage of. So as we start verse three, sorry, chapter three, let me make um, let me make a couple of introductory comments, okay? You have seen in chapters one and two that one of the key terms is the term good. As God evaluates his work, this is good, this is good, this is very good, so on. Remember, that means that which produces order and is conducive to life. I hope that's just a review for you. We are about to introduce. We're about to be introduced to a a being 
who, as you will see in a moment, is in rebellion against God, and he will not bring about order or life. He will bring about chaos and death. He is, the, he is anti everything God stands for. <clears throat> Second, we, we learn here, as you'll see, this is what's really quite astonishing. Adam and Eve, who are the image bearers of God and his stewards over his world. Remember he said in chapter 1 and 2, he's given that, this is God's giving them dominion authority, the, the power and authority to rule. And it is going to be Satan in the form of a subordinate creature that's going to tempt them. Now that sentence, does that make sense? I want you to think about that for a minute. It is Satan in the form of a subordinate creature, a serpent, that is going to tempt them. Which again, this indicates the, the, the depths in a sense of this, this nakedness. I mean, they are oblivious to this threat. And Satan knows that. And you'll see that in just a minute. Now, I've talked about this before, but I'll repeat it. Here in chapter 3, and, and in a sense, really throughout the Bible, the Bible does not explain to us the origin of evil and the origin of Satan in terms of his rebellion. It just tells us it happened. It doesn't tell us when it happened. It doesn't help tell us this, this very specific conditions. But it just, he shows up. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to... I'm trying again to get over the familiarity we have with this passage and look at it at the deeper level. There is so much going on in these first three chapters. And so Satan is going to show up, and it's, you're not going to have between chapters 2 and chapters 3 a long, detailed explanation of who Satan was, where he came from, why he rebels, how he rebels. He just shows up. Now, I've told you this before, but I'll just quickly summarize it. In Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following, and Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following, you have a description of Satan, and you have a summary of his rebellion. And it's, it's very clear what he's doing. Ezekiel 28 tells us that he, obviously, as a, a created cherub, a created being, he is maybe you could say it the way we often say it. He was at the right, he was God's right hand angel. <laughs> I mean, he was, a, he was an immensely beautiful, significantly powerful, and rather awesome being. But, and as we've talked before, God creates a universe where there is the possibility that his creatures will choose to rebel against him. And if, if that is going to occur... Uh, create that kind of world, or I guess another way to say it, God is not going to create a world where his his image bearers and his angelic hosts, his messengers, his servants, will just be like automatons, robots. And he issues a word, and they just bow down and do. That's not the kind of world God's creating. God's creating a moral universe that has ethical standards with the potential, with the possibility, with the probability that that risk will will be will be uh, fulfilled they will choose rebellion and so all of that 
is not discussed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. None of what I just said is discussed there. So that always is, to me anyway, maybe it isn't to you, but to me that's frustrating. I mean, it's really frustrating because I, if I were writing the Bible, isn't that a horrible thought? But if I were writing the Bible, I'd explain all this. I'd go into significant detail. But in God's wisdom and, of course, in his sovereignty, he chooses not to do all that. So we have to draw some inferences about what we do know, and I think for the most part, they're, they're pretty solid inferences. But I, I just wanted to, again, draw your attention to the fact that we, as we begin reading chapter 3, the entire tone of the book changes. The wording and focal point of it totally changes because something dastardly is about to happen. And there's one other thing I want you to observe as we start this very familiar passage. Satan never uses the word Yahweh. Never. And he never uses the word Adonai which is often translated Lord with small case letters. Yahweh is capital case letters, L-O-R-D. He uses a very general word, God, which is interesting. And I, I think we can legitimately draw some inferences from that. All right, now I said a lot of introductory stuff. Any questions? Connie, are you with me? Yeah. If, <clears throat> if it hadn't been for the fruit... From what I hear you saying, Satan still would have showed up for another try to bring them into some form of yeah. Well, you I think call it rebellion against God. Yeah. Well, the in, what really is going on here, and and we have said that before. And the words that we will see used by the tempter. What, what is really going on here is Satan wants these image bearers to join him in the rebellion. That's really what's going on here. Because uh, Satan is, um, and that's what Isaiah 14 does, Satan is challenging God in that very piercing phrase, I will be like the Most High, he says. I want to be God. Well, the in a way, the absurdity of a creature saying, I want to be the creator, which in a way is what he's saying. I mean, that's ludicrous. But at the same time, because he is so powerful, God created him that way. And because of the nature of the moral universe God is creating, there is that possibility that he will use that power for nefarious ends. Um, nefarious means evil, for evil ends. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? And this is, all, this is the kind of world God creates. And you're probably saying, well, why did he create that kind of a world? Why didn't he create that the world where there is no moral structure, there's just things that he creates that worship him? Well, then they're not voluntarily, lovingly worshiping him. Remember, I told you, God, 1 John chapter 4 says God is love. Two times it says that. It's not God manifests love, God shows. It's God is love. It's an attribute. It's a core of who he is. 
So that means love is is love is something that is a part of the communication and relational d- dynamic of the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I've said this many, many times, but I'll say it one more time because it's a great opportunity to say it. That is the uniqueness of biblical Christianity. Understanding and declaring that God is Trinity. Because you got a, you have a massive problem theologically as well as just philosophically. This is the major challenge of Islam. They affirm the monotheistic nature of God, that he's one. But they do not affirm the Trinity, that God is one essence of three persons. And so therefore, before anything is created, he is alone. That's why there is no such phrase, God is love, in the Quran. It doesn't exist. So here what you see is Satan is challenging all this. He's challenging this world of order that God's created. He's challenging this world, uh, this word of relational love and this creative cultivator nature of humanity that God created. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And Satan's challenging of it. And in effect, he says to Eve, because the text says, Eve is deceived, Adam willfully chooses this. Eve is deceived, not Adam. He's willfully, intentionally, understandably choosing to do this. But we'll look at that in just a minute. So, I mean, it's a, the the words are just ominous as we begin chapter 3. So I'm just trying to really set this up for you. Do you really grasp this very familiar passage? Verse 1. The message here is that women can lead men into temptation. That is not. (laughs) That is not the (laughs) temptation. That is not the takeaway from this class today. And if you say it is, Woody, I will deny it. I'll say, Woody's teaching heresy. Um, What it does, well, I'm not going to say what it does yet. I'll get to that point. Let's look at the verse one. Now the serpent, now that, I'm reading from the ESV, that's the translation I'm using for this, but I'm pretty sure almost all of your translations have that. Now the serpent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that that, the language there is is just, you're going from chapter 2 with the creation of, of the institution of marriage and so on, and the beauty of that, those wonderful words that we studied, and even that, now they were naked and without shame. Naked, vulnerable to evil, oblivious to evil. And there's no, there's no reason they shouldn't be. That's just the way God created things. But now the serpent shows up. The serpent. Now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which we studied a number of months ago, you might remember, tells us that's Satan. That's the devil. There's no question who this is. Was more crafty. ESV translates it that way more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Reminding us of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that everything has been made by Yahweh Elohim, but this serpent is different. He's exhibiting something negative, ominous, dangerous, crafty, shrewd, Subtle, 
the integrity of everything God has created is threatened by that word. This isn't an above-the-board kind of being. This is a deceptive, duplicitous, conniving, shrewd, crafty being. And you ask, why? doesn't tell us. But we know from all other parts of the Bible where this comes up is he is Lucifer. He is the anointed cherub of Ezekiel 28. He is the one who is challenging God's right to rule his world. And if God is going to challenge God, if Satan is going to challenge God's right to rule his world, he is about to do it indirectly by focusing on his image bearers. He cannot, well, I shouldn't say cannot, he he certainly could try it, but he's shrewd enough to know a frontal attack on God isn't going to work. But a Hail Mary will, in his opinion. It doesn't, but in his opinion. I'll get at God's image bearers. I'll get them to join the rebellion, and I'll crush him that way. That's shrewd. I'm not, you can, I'm not, that's nothing approving. I'm just trying to get you to understand, if it's possible, to, to grasp what's going on here. Other parts of the Bible tell us who this is and why he's in rebellion and so on. This doesn't, it just, it just shows up. But that ominous word that we translate crafty or shrewd, he is about to challenge the integrity of everything God's created by going after his image bearers. Now, if you were going to do that, if you were going to do that, somehow you must undermine the capacity of these image bearers to trust their creator. Because remember, they're naked. They're oblivious to evil. And, and they, they, they don't know anything about it because the world that God's created for them is a world clothed, they're clothed in innocence. It's a world they have absolutely no needs. And they just have one moral framework. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But everything else you're free to do. And so, you know, this is not necessarily threatening to Eve, but he's going to do something that is incredibly shrewd. How much of God's word does she really know? Does she really know it? Does she really understand what God has said? That's what he's testing. And so if you look at verse 2, he says, he, referring back to the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's... You know, that's a subtle question. Presumably, Satan knew, the serpent knew, that God did issue a moral dictum, a moral standard. But he's crafty, he's shrewd. I'm not going to say, did God say you're not supposed to eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that's a no-brainer. Did he say you're not supposed to eat any of the tree? And so Eve responds, now this is really important. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat 
of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She made three mistakes. She makes three errors. First of all, she says, you may eat. If you go back to Genesis 2, he said, you may freely eat of the fruit of the tree. And he said, well, that's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's a significant omission. You may freely eat. God is not hemming them in. God is not restricting. It's a, an affirmation, again, of their total freedom in the garden. Did God say you shall not touch it? No. You shall not eat of the fruit. That's what God said. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, she added, we're not supposed to touch it. And then she concludes, lest you die. God didn't say, lest you die. God said, you will certainly, surely die. She's lessening the penalty. She's fudging the penalty a little bit. God was emphatic. You will most assuredly die. She says, lest you die. Now, that's, you think, well, that's minor. That's just little. No, no, remember, what's Satan doing? Does she really know God's word? She doesn't. She makes three mistakes. Because obviously, men, this is the most important command. Indeed, it's the only command God issued. He said, fill the earth. Freely cultivate. It's all yours. You have dominion over everything. You rule over everything. He didn't say, don't, don't plow up the South 40. He didn't say that. Put olive trees here and maple trees. God didn't say that. God said one thing, and that's what Satan's testing. Does she really know? So if you were the tempter and she made three mistakes, what would you conclude? I've got her. I've got her. She doesn't know God's word. So all I have to do is plant in her mind a doubt about God's goodness. Plant in her mind an idea that God's holding back. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. Which has been the message of the evil one since Genesis 3. Convince people God does not have their best interests at heart. Convince people that God really is not who he says he is. So, you got it? Yes, Jim. I'm sorry I was not here last week. I'm sure you talked about what the tree of good and evil was. Uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. We talked a little bit about that. I think that, cover it yet, well, it's a, it's a playoff too. We'll talk a little more about it because when they eat, but it, again, I think it gets back to the importance of that word naked. They did, they were oblivious to the nature and all the aspects of evil. I mean, these are people, if you can put it that way, they're thoroughly clothed in innocence. They're not clothed in righteousness. They're clothed in innocence. And so 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil means you will now understand evil, which is why it says, it's, we'll, we'll read that in a couple of verses, they are now, na- oh, they realized what, that they're naked, and they cover them up. So, I mean, we, we misunderstand that. We think they just, they see their genitalia, and now they got to cover it up. Oh, no, 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 it's much, much, much deeper than that. They are now aware of evil. They now experienced evil, and the guilt and condemnation and corruption that goes with that. And their, their now inclination is to run away from God. And they hide, right? To run away from God. They hide. So, I mean, what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, you eat of that fruit, you will now not only have a cognizant understanding of evil, you will experience evil and the guilt and condemnation and corruption that goes with it. That's what it means. Going back to the, to the serpent. Yeah. That's a, the serpent is a, a creature created by God. Yes, we, we have to assume that. That's correct. The, the Lucifer in his capacity would not have the ability to create. Absolutely not. He does not have the capacity to create. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. So what he is doing, in a sense, he is manipulating the serpent. Uh, well, yeah. I, I'm not sure he can deceive it. I don't know if animals are capable of being deceived, but he is certainly using that serpent to deceive me. Well, or you can even put it this way. Uh, I'm, I hesitate to use that word because always associate with Jesus, but I'll use it another. He is he is incarnating the serpent. He is taking up residence in the serpent. If that way of putting it helps. So I mean, um, yeah, I was going to say something else, but I don't think I will. So I mean, I really want you to understand that when that word crafty. ESV translates that way in verse 1. That explains why he approaches Eve the way he approaches Eve. When he approaches Eve, he does not have good end in mind. He has a nefarious, dastardly, manipulative, controlling, dominating end to it. And his, his, his goal is, I want these creatures who bear the image of God to join the rebellion. That's what he wants. I cannot do a frontal assault on God, but I can get to God through his image bearers. And that's what he's doing. And when you look at human history, you could perhaps conclude he won. But why would you know he didn't win? Because of the cross. Jesus Christ and his finished work, death, burial, and resurrection, is the defeat of Satan. That's why the scriptures say, in effect, that once the resurrection occurred, Satan's days as the chief rebel are numbered. Which is why he tried to keep Christ from going to the cross. We have the same temptation even though we have received Christ today as uh, Adam and Eve had in the garden. Uh, Would you say uh, that he doesn't not relent uh, even today, when we have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, having received Christ, that he is still going to invade it and rationalize what we might do, and that's not that bad, you know, so that we are led away from God's will. Yeah, I think, um, 
yes, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, so much I could do with your question, but yes, he is still, he's still after us, but with a different goal in mind. I mean, he cannot. Um, let me put it this way: he he cannot, no matter what he is successfully able to do in tempting us, and if we give into that temptation, he can never succeed in getting us back into his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. But he can embarrass and humiliate God, so to speak, through the uh, sinful actions of his children who become his children by faith in his son. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Satan has a different strategy with believers than he does with unbelievers. He's a very different strategy. And and again, it's it's a lovely, lovely um, allegory that C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago, Screw Tape Letters. That's, I mean... Lewis just really understood that, and he's really trying to creatively help us understand what Satan is really trying to do. So for believers, he has a very, very different approach and a very different goal in mind. I believe in the security of the believer, so I don't think you can lose your salvation. That's not the right way to put it, but that's the way some people put it. But I think the security of the believer is something, but Satan can still can do a lot of damage through successfully tempting a, a believer in the short run. It could do a lot of damage. All right, let's look at the next uh, part, then in verse 4. Okay, this... Can I ask you? Uh, yeah. Um, back here, it said, <clears throat> um, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So those were two, two trees in the middle of the garden. And he just talks about the tree in the middle of the garden. She doesn't distinguish between those two trees, does she? Uh, that's correct. That's but correct. But God did true. not. But God did not say, "Don't eat of the tree of life." God said, "Do not eat of the tree of life." So, because I mean, she's just zeroing in on the one tree that God did issue an order, so to speak, a command, a dictate. And you're right; she doesn't specify it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, let's look at verse 4 then. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. That's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, he is now... Because he is convinced Eve doesn't really know God's word to the degree she said. Now he sees a little hole that is gradually becoming so wide he can drive his 18-wheeler through it. He wants her to doubt God. He wants her to doubt God's goodness. And he wants her to doubt the truthfulness, the veracity of what God has said. You're not going to die. I remember she, God had said, you shall surely, most certainly die. She left out that, that adverb. She said, lest you die. So Satan comes back and uses the adverb. You shall not surely die. He's quoting God correctly. He's just putting the negative word in there. You shall not do it. He is quoting God correctly. You shall not surely die. I mean, it's, it's a frontal assault on the word of God because she doesn't know the word of God. 
the way she should know the Word of God. So what he does now is he adds a substitutionary way of understanding what God said. In other words, saying God lied to you. What God didn't tell you, and he should have if he was a good God, the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will achieve deity through disobedience. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? You will achieve deity through disobedience. Which, you know, you sit down and think about that for about five seconds. That No, wait, that doesn't sound right, but that's exactly what he's saying to her. Because what he wants her to do, and he is presumably successful because of what she does, doubt God. He's holding back. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's a selfish, mean God. Why would you worship him? He's not telling you the truth. That isn't a positive command. Which, you know, you start thinking, well, then why? You know, you just, you, but she's not thinking that way. And you will become like God. You will know good and evil, which to me, is really an amazing thing to say, but he's playing off on what the tree is called, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's, I'm not sure, I, I don't, it's so hard to know how to think through all of this, how Eve is processing these words and so on. But God called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if you eat of that, you will surely, most certainly, assuredly die. So what did she even understand in terms of the word evil? You know, but anyway, Satan is very successful. What did she even understand in terms of dying and death? I'm sure there was, I mean, that wasn't part. Exactly what that meant in all its depths, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. She's about to find out. In, in verse 216, though, it, it says, And Jehovah God commanded the man. that tell us about Adam? Which we'll get to him in a minute. What does that tell us about Adam? Yeah, he was not. Sometimes we get the assumption, I've heard people preach this, and it, I don't know where they ever get this. Well, Adam wasn't there. Eve called him. He was in the South 40 plowing. That is absolutely not correct. The language of the text doesn't allow that. Adam was standing right next to Eve. And he should have been screaming at her. Don't listen to him. God didn't say it that way. And God's not that kind of God. He wouldn't lie to us. He's not misread. That's why the Bible blames the fall totally on Adam. Romans 5.12 even isn't even mentioned. Are you saying say uh, that uh, Eve is or Adam is right there? I do believe that. Listening to him. Yep. And you'll see why in a minute. So again, what he's doing is he's I mean he's just he's really calling God a liar. You shall not surely die. He's calling God a liar. Right there. Boldly, audaciously, God's lying to you. 
<clears throat> so let's look at verse 6. Now, there are really, really important words here. I mean, just really, really important terms. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And I'll look at those verbs in just a minute. I want to camp on this this, this language that's used in the sixth verse. You may notice some familiar terms or concepts there. A little bit like 1 John 2.16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's what sin is like. And she is on the verge of of joining the rebellion, and Satan has successfully gotten her to the point where she doubts God's goodness, doubts God's truthfulness, and her eyes are no longer on God. Her eyes are on this fruit that Satan has gotten her to completely reconsider. Own judgment, too. I'm sorry? And I own judgment. Yeah, which will follow. But I mean, just look at the language, because this is really, really important. Satan has successfully caused her to shift her focus from God, who is good, who is truthful, to the lure of this fruit. Language. It's good for food. It satisfies the physical aspect and dimension of life. It is a delight to the eye. It is the emotional, aesthetic, beautiful, luring, lovely, because that's the way sin looks. Beautiful, lovely, it's good for me. It only meets the physical need, it's beautiful. Oh, I can't ignore this, look how beautiful it is. And the tree is to be desired to make one wise. The focus on the, um, the intellectual and the spiritual. And all of a sudden, Eve sees three new luring possibilities for fulfillment in life. I'm missing out on something. We don't know how long they had been running around the garden together. I shouldn't have said it that way. How they had been cultivating the garden. We know how long it is. We really don't. But all of a sudden, Eve is looking at that tree in a totally different... How many times had she seen it? How many times had she looked at it? How many times did she stare at it? Well, probably not. My God said I'm not supposed to eat of it. No, I don't have any need to go in there. And now she's standing, she's looking at it, she's lured by it. Oh, it's good for food, the physical appetite. It's beautiful. It's a delight. Oh, look at this. I, I, I can't ignore that. And it's making me a promise. It'll make me wise. 
Because you see, I'm missing something. God's been holding back on me. Now all I have to do is exercise my will that God gave me and take it. And you know, maybe that serpent is on to something. Now when I eat it, it's not going to taste good. It's not going to be beautiful to touch and hold and smell. But it's going to make me wise. I'll see things. I'll understand things like I never did before. I want you to notice these verbs. Verse in the middle uh, of verse 6. I just want to highlight these. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. They're the four key operative verbs. She took, she ate, she gave it, he ate. Four rapid action verbs. And that's why do not think that Adam is on the other side of the garden 175 miles away. He's right there. That's why his culpability is greater than Eve's. It's amazing. And I want you to think about something. This is, this is an aside, but maybe it isn't an aside. When the Lord Jesus institutes his table, his supper, take, eat, this is my body. Why did he say take, eat? Why didn't he just say eat? Most expositors think this is in direct parallel to what Eve did. Now, Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, will countermand all that. And every time you partake of communion, you are taking and you're eating, remembering that Jesus countermanded, undid the rebellion. I don't think that's a coincidence. So you, you have just these these really astonishing verbs of direct, intentional, willful disobedience to God. They didn't talk about it. They didn't say to Satan, okay, we'll get back to you on this. Let's, we want to have a little bit of a, we want to go to get some marital counseling on this. Now, I'm really making all this up. But, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just really, it's just bang, 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 bang. They've done exactly what God told them not to do. But remember, they're moral creatures. God's created a moral universe, and they have chosen. They have chosen to join the rebellion. But Satan didn't say to them, "Come join the rebellion with me." That's not what Satan did. I'm I'm leading a rebellion against Almighty God, Yahweh Elohim. He doesn't say. It. By the way, I refer again. Satan does not use the word Yahweh. He does not use the word Adonai. He uses the word just God, a very general word. He will not even bow to the authority of God in the language he uses. Though he does an end run, it's a really shrewd, clever, deceptive way to get him to join the rebellion. He has to make the rebellion look luring, lovely, beautiful, 
personally fulfilling. But it's just the opposite. Sin is always like that. It never delivers what it promises. Never. Sin never delivers what it promises. It leads to exactly the opposite. Self-destruction. And it leads to death, which has two phases. You'll see the phases. There's spiritual death, separation from God. And then there's physical death, which is the tragedy of sin. All right, now, before we get into the second part, which is, this, I mean, second part of, of the results of the meeting, which is in verse 7, see if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts. You with? In, on this verse, I really want to make sure I understand. Adam shows his capabil- culpability not so much about his actions, but his lack of actions. Yeah, yeah. He is, we, 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 we talked about that. He is to be the spiritual leader. I mean, this sounds, it almost sounds trite. We make minimum, that's not, that's not, we shouldn't make trite. This is a really, really, God gave him that command. He gave him that responsibility. In, in uh, verse, uh, I think it's verse 16 of chapter 2 or whatever, close to that, verse 18 maybe. But anyway, God makes that very, very clear. And then he creates, and Adam's respo- Adam is the primary responsibility for this. And that's why when you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and 1 Timothy 2, something, I forget the exact verse, it's very clear who has the culpability for this rebellion. Adam. Yeah, it makes me think of the Bonhoeffer quote, silence in the face of evil. Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. That's exactly, that's what Bonhoeffer's talking about there. So, I mean, it's, um, the, the, there are so many things to do with this, and, and I guess the rest of the Bible just unfolds the, the results of all this. But I've really taken my time in going through this, because, I mean, every one of you in this room has read this multiple times. I'm trying to get you to see there's a lot more going on here. And the second aspect is words are important to God. I mean, they really are. That's why when, when the manuscripts of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, were copied, they, they took unbelievable care in how they copied the text. That's why we have absolute certainty that we have in front of us the original text. Because of the meticulous, and that's a long issue to try to explain to you, but words are really important to God. And it's important for you and me to understand what those words are. And you see it again. If you're, if you're Satan, if you're the serpent, the most important thing you want to try to test, does this person really know what God has said? Because if they don't, I've got them. Which, let's put it into the positive. As Israel reads this, because remember, the, the, the original readers of the Old Testament were, were the Israelites. And the Israelites read this, what are they con- to conclude? Knowledge of the word of God is primary task number one. Primary task number two is obedience to God. That's what they're to learn. I mean, this isn't just a made-up story. This is historical. This is exact, But this if you don't learn this and you don't get this takeaway, then let's see what happens in the next chapter. You still have people don't know God's word and are not obedient to God. And what happens to the downward spiral of evil? It just accelerates. 
I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Why? Because people do not take seriously the word of God and do not take seriously obeying God. So, so I mean, it's just this is it's, it's right out of the chute. You're seeing once sin enters, you see the problem. So logically, knowledge does have to come first. Otherwise, you don't know what to obey. Okay, that's exactly right. Which, require, which means you have to engage the word, you have to think about it, you have to study it, you have to read it, you have to understand it, but that's right. It doesn't come by osmosis. But God gave Adam knowledge mm-hmm. when he instructed him. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And I mean, that's why it, 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 the Bible seems to say to us rather clearly that Adam did not really do what he was supposed to do, and he certainly was not taking seriously his obligation to also protect his helper, to guard and guide his helper. He's not saying anything subordinate or demeaning to her about her. But that's why the Bible is just crystal clear. Adam willfully. Adam was not deceived. I mean, it's just Adam should have just saying, Eve, don't do it. Don't listen. And for goodness sake, don't take the fruit. But he doesn't do that. Jim, is that and so he must have just, he must have heard and must have concluded the same thing she concluded. Oh, that looks so delicious for food. Oh, my. And it's so beautiful. It's delightful. Oh, it's so beautiful. We're taking a new look at this. We've never looked at it like that. And you know, if I do eat, it's going to make me wise. And I'm going to be like, God, oh, my goodness. So Adam says, but Adam, knowing better, isn't deceived. He said, that's not everything God said to me. That's not true. But, you know, maybe it isn't as bad as God said it is. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I completely can process that word. I guess let's take the risk. Maybe Satan's right. You know, it's just you to try to process all that may or may not have been going through Adam's mind. But he eats. Would you ascribe that same responsibility to the men around this table? I mean, us as men. Knowledge of the word of God and obedience to God. As far as our helpmate goes. Oh, yes. That's funny. Yeah. That's I mean, it's just, well, it's just, it, it doesn't mean that we sit down and say, okay, honey, I'm going to now teach you Genesis 1. <laughs> so sit down, take notes, it'll be a quiz and we're done. No, it's just that you're just making sure that the spiritual Dimension and quality of your family life is there. You, know, you go to church. <clears throat> excuse me. You, you know, you have a family. However, it doesn't rigid way to do it. But there's a family time where you're focusing and reading the word. You're, you're praying. You're encouraging. You're building up one another. I mean, all of those things. The spiritual leadership of the home is the father and the husband. But is it, is it also telling us we can't be complacent? Absolutely. Be Absolutely. Not passive. That's right. Obedience, and there is no such thing as passive obedience. That's an oxymoron. Passive obedience. You're active in your obedience. You know what I mean? It's like sitting, okay, God, make me obedient. Uh, I mean, in a way. I mean, it's, no, I want to be obedient, so give me the energy, enablement, power, strength, and desire to be obedient. Type thing. All right. Uh, Goodness, I can't believe it's 20 over already. Can I... Quickly do verse 7. Can I quickly do that? Then, that's a really important word. Then 
the eyes of both were opened. Now, you know that doesn't mean their eyes where they, you know, see this coffee cup. It, it's, they now, what God had said, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they're open. And when the text says they knew that they were naked, I, again, I stressed that a little last time, and I stressed to being naked there is a far, far more important term than just they don't have any clothes on. Now they're aware they look at their genitals, genitals, first time I ever saw that. That's not what it means. Naked, they are now aware of evil. Yeah, it's real to them. And the guilt and corruption and comprehension of evil is now real to them. And therefore they respond with the need to cover up their genitals. Because there's now guilt, something they've never experienced before. They never experientially knew guilt. Now they know it. And there's a corruption means their nature. There's now an an awareness uh, and and a a depth of what they've done. And the lie of Satan is now exposed. Yes, you will know good and evil, he promised at the end of verse 5. But be like God My wife, I think I may have mentioned this, but my wife, who my wife, all, every now and then, almost every day, she'll just lay this profound sentence on me. And I've been studying all this for 35 years, and my wife, she said, you know, honey, Adam and Eve are the only human beings that know what they lost. That's very profound. Isn't that true? They walked with God. They knew God at a level of intimacy that you and I don't. Now we will. And they lost it. Instead of looking forward to the times each day, I mean, I think that's how we're doing, draw this from the next paragraph, when they walked with God and fellowship with God and taught, you know, Lord, today we were, we were, we were planting the tulips at springtime. Lord, I'm making this up, but Lord, they're so beautiful. You created those. And thank you for letting us share and being creative cultivators. And Lord, I'm thinking about, I'm just, you know, you gave me this responsibility. And you said, what I'm thinking about doing is, is, is taking that whole section down and just planting a whole bunch of mulberry trees. And, and I, I'd like to maybe think about, Lord, just putting a whole bunch of pansies in there. I just think they're so beautiful. And I want to provide, and God is just saying, that's beautiful. Good. You're being what I want you to be. And when they had their eyes open, they run away from God. They run away. Guilt, overwhelming, burdensome guilt that they can't even stand it. They don't even want to be near God. Isn't that awful? Isn't that horrible? But that's every single human being on earth until they find Jesus. They're running away from God. They rationalize it. They make up. Well, I'm an atheist. I don't. I don't believe in any supernatural. That's another example of running away from God. Well, I believe there's one God. I think there are multiple. I think there are hundreds of millions of gods. The Hindu says, and my task in life is to merge with the Great One, the Gurna Brahma. And I'm a Hindu. I'm a Buddhist, and I'm trying to get depths of understanding by looking inward. 
And the Bible says you start looking inward, you see depths and corruption and sin and rebellion and evil. That's not real helpful. But my singular goal as a Buddhist is to break the cycle of reincarnation and merge with the great one and attain nirvana, where I cease to exist. What a great goal for life, which is what the Buddhist have. I mean, on and on of it, genuine biblical Christianity is saying, you have a problem. That problem is rebellion against God. And until you settle that issue, you will never understand, see, appreciate, and enjoy being a creature of the living God. You're running away from him. Run toward him. Embrace his son. That's the message of the gospel. And I mean, what, what happens here is what happens to every single human being. Until they find Christ, they are running away from God. They don't want him. They don't want to understand who he is because they think he is constraining them, uh, re restraining them. He's putting unreasonable boundaries around my freedom. He's hemming me in and he's not letting me be all I want to be. And that's Genesis 3 teaches us you have the freedom to follow that path. But that's the path of self-destruction. There is another way to live your life. And that's why ancient Israel reads this. You and I can read it thousands of years later. And I can read that and I can identify with exactly what was going on in Eve's mind. That's good for me. That'll help meet a physical need I have. That's so beautiful. I can't live without it. And it'll make me even more wise and more insightful than I am now. That's what happens to a man who's lured into an adulterous relationship. I'm going to be a much more fulfilled man if I am just with her. Or same sex with him. Or whatever it is. If I just get this much more money, then, you know, did you ever hear that story? John D. Rockefeller, a reporter, went in. Mr. Rockefeller, what do you want out of life? You know what his answer was? More. Which, you know, he was, he was worth, today it would be about $190 billion. That's what John D. Rockefeller, and he wanted more. Because, you know, it's just the, the, the lure of the eyes, the delight something I don't have. It's offering me something I don't have. And if I just get it, I'll be satisfied. That's not what happened. So tomorrow what I want to do, because we're going to stop, or I mean next uh, Wednesday what I want to do is look at verse 8 and following. At this rate, we will finish the book of Genesis in 2019, in December of 2019. No, we're, we're not going to go through some of the narratives quite this because it's not as, but the, every, almost every word in this is important. I really want to take the time. So I hope that's okay. If it isn't okay, stop coming. But I'm not, because I'm going to keep, that's what I'm going to, that's how I want to go through this. It is so important to understand this. All right? Okay. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the clarity of it. And this passage that we've studied here uh, this morning is a, it's a gripping one because it really, really helps us to understand the deceptive nature of the evil one. He is interested in one thing, 
getting the image bearers of God to join him in the rebellion. And he was successful with Adam and Eve, and every human being bears that curse. Uh, the amazing thing about you, Lord, is that you chose to give us another way. We've chosen rebellion, but you've given us another way to come back to you. And that's through the Lord Jesus. That's through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is through committing that uh, act of faith that we apply that finished work to our life by faith. And we are transformed. We're a new creation. And we begin that process of learning what purpose and fulfillment, meaning, joy, beauty, satisfaction is not found in anything outside of Jesus. And I pray these men around this table have made that step of faith and they're beginning to truly understand, and it does take a lifetime, it really does, truly understand that completeness and purpose and joy and fulfillment is really found only in Christ. And then he gives new meaning to the joy of the material things you give us, the beauty of the world you've created, and the joy of family, of our spouses, of, of being all that you want us to be. It is only through Christ that that is all realized. And this text is helping us to understand the nature of the rebellion, the lore of sin, and its self-destructive nature. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who made a way back to you and it enables us to enjoy what Adam and Eve lost, we gain. And for that, we will give you eternal praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week. Lord willing.